I'm really glad to see you here this morning, this afternoon. I really am. As I, as I turned the Seahawks football game off at halftime, I said, I hope other people will do that too. Uh, and, uh, but it's good, to, it's good to have you here. Uh, I've really enjoyed the past several months uh, as I've been uh, given the opportunity to fill in as interim pastor. And I kind of have a, some mixed feelings about, okay, we're going to be getting another one. And that's really, really good. I'm really, really glad. But then I won't be able to preach anymore. Well, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I can, I can still fill in, I guess. Last week, we looked at grace from a, a divine perspective. You know, God's grace to us and what that means. One of the things we saw is that grace is a free gift that incurs no debt or obligation. Now, I don't know if that has fully sunk into you yet. Okay? That God's grace incurs no debt or no obligation. We are not indebted to God to do anything. We have no obligation as Christians to do anything for God. We are not paying God back for his free gift of grace. Our relationship with God is based upon grace alone and not duty. We are free to choose to, to live from a heart that's motivated by love instead of obligation. And today I want us to look at the human level of grace. What does grace look like from our perspective in our lives where we are living? We live in a sphere of grace. So what do we do? How do we do that? How does it affect our relationships with one another? And I want to begin in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, <clears throat> with this very simple but extremely important principle of God's grace. And that is this. We need grace to keep from getting bitter. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. In life, we need to both give and receive grace. Now, I am more likely to want to receive grace than I am wanting to give grace to other people. But when we aren't living in that sphere of grace, we can become bitter. We can become troubled. We, we can corrupt others. The word bitterness here is the idea of resentment. If we do not extend grace to other people, then we can resent them. 
And it doesn't matter who they are in our life, if it's our, if it's our boss or our children or our parents or whomever. When we are not extending grace to them, that harshness comes up in us, that, that resentment, that bitterness. And, and it calls here it, a, a root of bitterness. I like that. Because the root of bitterness produces the fruit of bitterness. As the root is, so is the fruit. It, it says, uh, we become troubled. And boy, have you seen that in your life? When, when something has happened and, and not very good and boy, you become resentful and, and, and your soul, your spirit is, is resentful. Um, the, the word in the, in the Greek has the idea of being carried away with a mob. And the idea is that we have no control over it. If we're not extending grace to people who have hurt us or offended us, then it's like a, it's like a runaway train, a runaway mob. And we find that we lose control over ourselves. And it says there that, that we can corrupt others. We can pollute others. I have seen that so much in my experience uh, as a pastor. And that is when one person becomes bitter, they want other people to take their side. So they're going to start spreading, oh, you know what so-and-so did to me, you know? And so, okay, now not only are they bitter, but now the next person is bitter. And then they, it just kind of passes it on, okay? And, and the result is that, uh, that many become polluted with that bitterness. Because we want other people to know how we have been wronged there. Well, God wants us or wants to give us more grace. So when, when, when we're hurt, when we're offended, God's initial desire is, I want to give you more grace now. Okay. To deal with that, that situation so it doesn't overtake us. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, it says, And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself before God. We need God's grace continuously. Okay, It's not a once for all, we're saved by grace, that's it. Now, starting next week, we're going to start hearing testimonies from people in the church. And we're going to hear testimonies, I'm sure, of how God's grace has impacted their lives. And it's a continuous process. And it says, when we need God's grace, God gives more grace, but he gives it to the humble. Humility is the basic foundational virtue, I believe, of the Christian life. Without humility, there's no love. Without humility, there's no forgiveness. With hum with, without humility, there's pride in our life. So we can't grow in grace. And without grace, we can't love unconditionally. So, so I look at it this way. Grace and humility are Siamese twins. Okay? 
They're joined at the hip. You can't have one without the other. And having humility towards one another is evidence of God's grace at work in our lives. Over in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, says, And all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares for you. How can we give all of our cares to God? We do it by extending grace to others. And then knowing that he is the one who's going to take care of us. But now it's talking here about relating to people. You know, how do we relate to one another? Well, we relate to one another in humility. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. And what we need when we've been hurt or offended is we need God's grace so that a root of bitterness doesn't spring up within us and defile many other people. Pride says, I can do it myself. Which is the same thing as saying, I don't need God. If I can do it myself, I don't need God, do I? That leads to bitterness. And that leads to pollution. And that leads to infecting others. Well, I want today to get really specific. Okay? What does grace look like in certain situations that we might find ourselves in? And the first one I'd like for us to look at is what does giving grace look like in our families? What does it look like in a family? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says everyone, it's implied there, submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. In the home, every person in that home is to give grace to all the other people in that home. Okay, It's a form of mutual submission. Now, that's kind of a generality. What does that look like now in specifics? And so the Apostle Paul in the very next verse, says, okay, let's break it down. Let's see what it looks like here. And he says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, this verse has been used by men to beat their wives over the head with, trying to get them to submit to every whim and, and desire uh, of, of the husband. Yeah, they forget that the verse right before it says, submit to one another. Yeah, it does. Because the next verse, or down to verse 5 or 25, says, for husbands, this means loves your, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. 
So the wife is supposed to submit to the husband's leadership. The husband is to submit in meeting the needs of his wife, just as Christ meets the needs of the church. He's to love her like Christ loves the church. That means the husband is to give himself unconditionally to meet the needs of the wife. Now, women, if you thought your job was hard, submitting to the husband, the husband is to become like Christ in giving grace to the wife. He is to personify Christ himself. Wow. Giving grace like God gives grace to the wife. Breaking it down further, Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Children are to extend grace to their parents. Now, why would God say that children uh, are to extend grace to the parents? Because the parents aren't always right. That's why. Okay? So when it says children obey your parents, it's not saying children obey your parents when they're right. Okay? But even when they're wrong, extend grace to them and obey them. The King James Version, it says that it may go well with you. Um, We have found in our home anyway that when children refuse to submit to the authority of their parents, that things don't go well. Okay? Uh, yeah, that's just our house there. So children are to submit to the authority of the parents, especially talking here about the father. In the, or in the next verse, uh, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Here it's saying, parents, you are to submit to your children. Have you ever heard that in church before? Parents are supposed to submit to their children. In what way? They are to submit in meeting the needs of their children. What do children need? Well, we could spend a whole sermon on that. You know, they need discipline. They need correction. They need instruction. You know, there's a lot of things there. Uh, King James Version says, don't exasperate your children. Um, one of the lesser literal translations I looked at says, don't push their buttons. Okay. Parents, don't push the children's buttons. That's a whole study in itself. But extending grace to others includes husband to wife, wife to husband, parent to child, child to parent. Everyone submitting to one another in the home. Now, how can we do that? Well, without humility, there's no grace. Without grace, there there is no mutual submission in the home. Without mutual submission in the home, the the whole family falls apart. 
And if the family is, is the building block of society, if there isn't grace shown at home, then all society falls apart. So how important is grace in our daily lives? How important is it in our homes? I'll let you decide on that. Oh, let's look at another aspect of showing grace. What does grace look like in a church? Okay. What does it look like in our church life? In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in, in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing says this, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Wow, there is so much in this passage to unpack. <laughs> it is loaded here. But let, let me just hit some highlights. First highlight, this is written to the church. This is written to believers. This is written to believers when they get together with other believers. So it's talking about the interpersonal relationships within a church. It's talking about how do we extend grace to one another in a church. It's how we fellowship. It's how we get along. Now, this may shock you, but Christians don't always get along with one another. You know, just so happens. So how are we to work together as believers, as a church, if we don't get along? What if somebody hurts somebody in the church? What if somebody offends somebody in the church? Well, one evidence of giving grace is a tender and compassionate heart. To have an empathetic heart towards the needs of others, the, the suffering of others. If someone walks in the church and tears are running down their face as they walk into the church, which direction do you run? Away or toward? Maybe they walk into church tearfully every Sunday. And maybe your first thought is, you know, they need to get their act together. You know, you know I, I've got problems too. You know, uh, maybe it's my turn. I deserve to cry on somebody else's, you know, shoulder. I mean, they owe me for all that I've done for them. But grace is a free gift that incurs no debt or obligation. We love one another. We, we, we work with one another. It says we have one purpose. We consider meeting the needs of others as being more important 
than having our own needs met. I cannot tell you how many times as a pastor I have had people say, you know, who've left the church and you call them and you talk to them, you know, why did you leave the church? And they said, well, the church wasn't meeting my needs. Is that why we go to church? In order to meet our needs? The Bible says we gather together to meet the needs of other people. We're more interested in serving than being served. And isn't that what grace is all about? It's about serving. When God pours out his grace upon us, he is serving us. Losing for the cause of Christ becomes more important than getting our way. We we do not promote ourselves. We, We look out for the interests of other people. Well, we commit ourselves to the success of others. Believing that other people are committing themselves to our success. You know the old saying, beat thine own drum, lest thine own drum get not beaten? Yeah, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. In the church, grace exhibits itself in an unconditional commitment to other people. We're committed to their success without placing any obligation upon them. We commit ourselves to their success, expecting nothing in return, demanding nothing in return, wanting nothing in return, because all we want is their success. We're doing it for them, not for us. Self-centeredness is pride. Self-pity is an evidence that we have placed some debt or obligation upon someone else and they're not fulfilling that obligation or duty. Let's move on. What does grace look like in the community? What does it look like in our community? As we go out from church and we interact with people in the community, what does it look like for us to share grace with them? Well, everything I just said about Christians extending grace to other Christians also applies to the world out there, to our relationships with those outside the church. You know, if ever, if ever there were a group of people who needed to see the grace of God in action, it is our society today. They need it more than ever. God has not called us to judge unbelievers. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, says, it is not my responsibility to judge outsiders. He's talking about the unsaved. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those who, in the church who are sinning. It is not our responsibility to go out in the world and, and produce condemnation and judgment upon them. That's God's job. Our job is to show grace to them. I'm going to say something very profound but I'd tell you ahead of time in case you missed it. Here it is. Sinners 
sin. Okay? Sinners sin. I expect sinners to sin. By the way, as believers, we are no longer sinners. I hear this all the time. People say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You're not a sinner anymore. Once you get saved, you are a saint who sometimes sins. <laughs> but there's a difference because sinners sin. Liars lie. Murderers murder. Saints act like saints. Okay. I expect the unsaved world to act like they are unsaved. It doesn't surprise me. You know, you, you read the news and you, you you want to shake your head saying, what in the world is wrong? Well, what is wrong is they're not saved yet. Okay? We can't expect the unsaved to act like Christians. And sometimes we get so caught up in their sins that we forget to offer them the Savior. What the unsaved world needs to see is God's grace. And they're going to see it through us. What does it look like? It means loving them in such a way that they see what unconditional love looks like. It means serving them. It means losing so Christ can win sometimes. So where do we start? Okay. Where do we begin in this process? In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, gives us the supreme example. It says, Having this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Verse 8 ends with the final action, the death on the cross. Verse 5 begins with an attitude. Let this same attitude attitude that Christ had be in you. To be like Christ, the first thing we have to do is have the same attitude that, that Christ had. What attitude did he have? He had the attitude of giving grace to others. We need to have that same attitude of giving grace to others. We can never be more like God, I believe, than we are when we are showing grace to other people whether it be in the church, in the family, or in the community. Let's have an attitude check this morning, shall we? Did you ever do that at home with your children? All right, time out. Time for an attitude check. Okay, well, let's have an attitude check this morning, shall we? Jesus surrendered all of his rights. What rights are you still clinging to? Let's check our attitude. Have we said, well, I have a right to? What rights have you not surrendered yet to God? Jesus 
gave up all his privileges. What privileges are you refusing to surrender to God? Jesus did not demand anything from anybody. What demands are you not relinquishing yet? See, Jesus showed us that there's something more important than our rights and our privileges and our demands. And we want God's grace. We're willing and eager to get God's grace. Are we willing and eager to give that grace to other people? I believe there's not a single area of life that cannot be touched by God's grace if we'll let it. We sang amazing grace. Amazing doesn't begin to touch it. It goes so much further than that. It doesn't even touch the surface. Grace is a thread that God weaves into every single relationship we have, both with Him and with everybody that we come in contact with. And 2 Corinthians 12.9 gives this very simple statement, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, that's all we need. That's it. That's it. We simply need God's grace. And when grace is in place, then our relationships are going to be right with one another in the family, in the church, in the community. Is God's grace enough for you? Can you trust God both to receive and to give that grace to others? Or is God's word all wrong? Because it really comes down to that, doesn't it? Either God's word is right, and God's grace is sufficient, or it's not right. And we need to come up with plan B. Plan B always fails. Always fails. Let's stick with plan A, shall we? Let's stick with the grace of God. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment to respond to God. I haven't done this in a while, but... Nobody praying out loud or talking out loud or anything. You just talk to God about His grace. It's sufficient to meet your need. It would be sufficient to meet the needs of the people you come in contact with. Are we truly committed to practicing grace? You just quietly talk to God and then I'll close in a moment. Father, I confess that I am more anxious to receive your grace than to extend your grace to others. And Father, I'm more inclined to 
demand my rights than to surrender my rights. To have demands rather than give in to the demands of others. Father, you've called all of us to esteem others' needs more important than our own. So, Father, may we be willing to give grace today. And, Father, we know people don't deserve grace. And that's why, that's what they need. For grace is an undeserved gift that incurs no debt or obligation. Thank you for your grace. May we celebrate it today, Lord, as we go our way. May we celebrate that you have given us everything we need by your grace. Thank you for your word and the challenge it brings us. For I pray in Christ Jesus' name, amen.